Hello and welcome to the Caring Instinct podcast. Today is another book club episode, but it's definitely not a book for children. It's The Myth of Normal by Gabo Matei, and it's more than a book club because I'm going to interview a compassionate inquiry practitioner. Compassionate in- inquiry is a psychotherapeutic approach developed by Dr. Gabo Matei, and the practitioner happens to be. Joe Atkinson. Over here. <laughs> Compassionate Inquiry is really close to my heart and it's relatively new. It's only been around four or five years, I think, maybe mm-hmm. less. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing more about it. It's not a parenting book, but A, it talks about uh, what Gordon Newfeld and his friend Gabo Mate uh, call yeah. the irreducible needs of children what children need to develop their full human potential, as uh, Dr. Newfold always says. And ultimately, as teachers, we always say we teach who we are. And this applies to parenting even more. (laughs) We teach who we are. And we parent who we are, definitely. Yeah, it happens naturally. And yeah, those irreducible needs is... um, Gordon is obviously famous for child development Gabor even though child development is is a big part of what he's done trauma would probably be the main thing that he would be famous for it's sometimes it's referred to as you know like capital T trauma uh, different types of abuse these kind of things uh, where they meet is more the and Gabor would call it uh, relational trauma mm-hmm. in the sense of if a child doesn't get those irreducible needs or there's not Gordon might say that an invitation to exist in our presence, uh, then that's a type of trauma as well. And that kind of underlines the capital T trauma. If that can be explored, if if you can develop that relationship as an adult with yourself for the unfolding of potential like Gordon might describe, then we can really work through these things. And that's where the healing comes, really. It's nice to see how they fit together in that way. Yes, and they, they both they have slightly different mm. language, but it's you can see where it's the same. Because they both go to the crux of the matter rather than going to techniques, parenting techniques, the life hacks and so on. They talk about the core things like Yeah. And, and much of the trauma work yeah. is coming back to those, you know, early relationships, childhood trauma. That's where a lot of the work is. With the book it took me on a journey. Some things I was so curious about, some things when you, some things angered me, mm. um, triggered me, some things saddened me, and some gave me hope. Where do you want to the, start? Shall we start with the name of the book, The Myth of Normal? Yes. What do you think? I love it. And it's so applicable to raising children, where so much that we take as a norm is a very recent invention, starting from the practice of uh, sending children away to get to daycare, to be cared by adults who are nominated to do that, rather than who children Mm. have an actual relationship with. Yeah, and And my children didn't go to nursery, but statistically, that is abnormal. It's rare, society. rather than it's rare. Yes. Yeah, you don't meet too many children. 
that haven't had that haven't started nursing at some yes, point. Yes, school is the same. It's a relatively new idea. Well, no, that's not right. The idea that schools well, have existed for ages. But yeah. I mean, how long have we been around? One hundred and fifty thousand years. And raising children has been done in the context of uh, a community, an extended yeah. family, where once they probably became teenagers, they could go off on their own quests, also led by adults who sort of specialize in this. Uh, but now it's your four, off you go. Yeah, there's been a shift, hasn't there, really? It, for me, the normal is, has become almost that capitalist. We all specialize in something. I'll be in charge of this area, you be in charge mm -hmm. of this area. And so, okay, we get teachers, specialist teachers, specialist people in childcare, and they're going to be the best. We outsource the work to others. The idea is that's going to be a child's best bet. Yes, because they've got a diploma in that. They've got a diploma, yeah, they've studied. There's lo there's lots of books out on childcare. There's lots of techniques. If someone spent a few years studying it or it's, it's their passion, then they're going to be better off with my kids than maybe they would be with me. That's the idea. When what ends up happening is they have no relationship. They have so many teachers, substitute teachers. The situation in education is so poor and teachers are so overworked and becoming so rare that there isn't even a constant teacher in many classes. And why is it important? Because it becomes an attachment figure. It becomes, for a child, uh, someone who they can look up to, who can, because of that, take care of them and teach them. But we think just because they've got a diploma, they can do it and that's enough. Yeah, it's in the relationship, isn't it? It's always in. So it, it can work So if the relationship's there with the teacher or the son. But the reality is the schools are under a lot of pressure the, these days. That that's Everything's kind of compounding. Nursery staff are paid minimum wage. There's a lot of stress that comes with these roles and the emphasis on these roles is on the stuff like the diplomas or the statistics. The emphasis is not often on the relationship. My friend is a reception teacher. Reception is the first year of school in the UK and she says the curriculum expects teachers to start on early literacy in the very first week. You've got to start teaching your phonics, uh, your numbers, before you've had any time to forge any relationship with your child, with yeah. the children in your care, with the 30 children in your care. And that yeah. is just completely <clears throat> and, You know, what comes up for me, if, if the relationship, the emphasis was on the relationship, you'll know when's the best time to start the teaching. The, maybe your relationship with your class is there in a couple of weeks maybe it's going to take a whole term but that you're going to know best exactly but that would just you know that's not normal <laughs> so what was your first <coughs> ever encounter with uh, Gabo Mate's work what spoke to you so uh, do you know what I can't really remember but I started training in addiction psychology and counseling and was working with homeless heroin addicts in 2008 I think and I imagine it's because he was working with homeless uh, heroin addicts as well that mm -hmm. I read his book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And that was where I found his work and, and his teachings. And then 
it kind of followed on from there. He, he has other books, The Scattered Mind, which is about ADHD. Yeah. Hold On To Your Kids, which he's wrote with Gordon Neufeld. And When The Body Says No, now this latest one. And I kind of just read them as they come up. As I moved into teaching and childhood, you know, I read Hold On To Your Kids and mm -hmm. it kind of everything. As I started, I was a Senko for books, so ADHD. It fit my timeline quite nicely. And when uh, I heard about Compassionate Inquiry, I just knew it would be for me. You had the trust in him. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was the third cohort or something like that. And it was, right. a, it was a very raw course when I did it, but ah. yeah, it was great. So how did Gabo Mate's work on addiction add to your own training in the addiction psychology? It was, was just it different. Um, was it? it was yeah, there was definitely different. It was just a completely new lens to look at addiction through. With Gabo and with Gordon, I find that there's the similarity with them is there's something about them. They're able to find a language that connects connects all different parts of us, like our, our heart, our head. It's not they're not just intellectual with theories as well so the, the language is sometimes very simple you know the words an invitation to exist in someone's presence it's truly it's a intuitive. very simple thing, but it's a very intuitive it just they take you to much deeper places than anyone else i'd come across at the time and having that lens to see addiction to see childhood it gave me space to explore it it gave me a lens to to look at it and that's where my curiosity was so i followed it do you know Mm -hmm. Do you know what struck me in what he writes on addiction in The Myth of Normal? Mm. This approach, but how did or how does your addiction serve you? Yeah. What is it it's giving you? What is it it's protecting you from, at least initially? Yeah, that's one of the main lines of inquiry you would have with, with someone experiencing addiction. And there's also, a, you know, that kind of recognition that there's that addiction can be alive in all of us in different ways. Mm -hmm. There's a function to it. It will be there for a reason. And in that case, in that sense, it's a kind of befriending it. How do you mean? Because if it has a function, it's doing something for you, then the, its intention is maybe it's one of protection. Maybe it's to help you feel alive. Maybe it's a coping mechanism. Whatever you find in yourself. If you were a godlike figure, you know, handing out mechanisms as you were born, say, hey, you know, here we go, I'm going to give you something that's going to protect you or there's something here that's going to help you to feel a lot, you know. What would you say? It sounds great because it is at the, the intentional level at the, at the bottom. It's just, it's hard to see that. And in yes. society as well, what seems like the main thing is, is something to fight, something to get away from. Something, something to, to willpower out of. To willpower out of, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we come back to the, the, the Gordon counter will. And if you put your two hands together and you push with one, you'll find the other one pushes right back. And so whenever there's that energy towards fighting it, it kind of fuels it a lot. So it's, it's an approach that comes, well, the intention is to come underneath the counter will. And it's done through, through relationship. And that's what I really like. If you're exploring addiction, say, it's very similar to the child development in that sense, in that the emphasis is on relationship, the emphasis on safety. It's about the unfolding of potential and everything that can happen is already there to unfold. It's, everything's in the environment. It's, it's exactly the same lens. What blew my mind in the book was when he writes that none of these substances that people get addicted to are actually that addictive by themselves, objectively. Yeah. What people do get addicted to is um, the function that they're fulfilling. 
There's a good experiment here. I think this. Uh, uh, have you heard of Johan Hari? No, but I, he writes uh, yeah, a lot about was, addiction mm-hmm. as well, and uh, it's yeah, it's similar. But he shares an experiment called um, the the way they would test heroin with animals with mice. So you lace water with heroin and put it in, and have one water and one heroin, and then the mice would be in a cage, and the the mice would come along and you know get addicted to the heroin water and yeah. just keep drinking it and drinking it. And then some came, someone came along and said, look at the environment, the rat's in, it's in a cage, let's change this, we're going to make, I think they called it like rat park or rat heaven, something like that. They just made uh, a home for the rat which was, tried to make the best home ever, there were other rats there, there was stuff to do, they could, there was food, they had, you know, a rat's perfect environment, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and um, the same thing, water lace of heroin and water and the the rats that lived in rat they didn't get addicted to the heroin it's that observation about the vietnam war veterans who were using drugs in vietnam but those who returned and were lucky to be back in in the context of their attachments of their families they didn't use it anymore yeah even though this is such a destructively addictive drug. Yeah. And there's something about that that served the function in the moment there, in the time for however long, but there was like that Gordon Youth Talks, that end of the day where they were able to come out in that context of relationship, you say, and there was just no need for it then. I remember actually my first encounter with Gabo Matei's work very well. I was teaching at preschool, yeah. I'd been teaching English before to like, people of all ages from three upwards. And then I realized I liked working with children best. And then I moved to a preschool job. And as much as I liked work, working with children, I had so many questions. I, I knew so many things weren't working. I wasn't what they needed a lot of the time. Those little three-year-olds who followed me around the classroom asking, where is my mommy? Where is my mommy? But when will she be back? And I would say, mommy is at work, but what's at work? Then I found Gabo Matei's and Gordon Newfold's videos on YouTube. Together, like videos together. Yes, there was some event in Canada, I believe, where they both spoke beautifully as they do. And I remember Gabo's story that he tells about his infant self, he was mm. born in Hungary uh, during the war and how his mother brought him to the doctor in the first days of the war and said, little Gabo won't stop crying. Mm. And the doctor gave him a checkup and said, Mrs. Mate, unfortunately, all Jewish babies won't stop crying. Mm. Which is, of course, a story about how parental stress translates into into trauma for infants. Yeah, um, it, and it, it just shows and, how mm. sensitive a baby is to the environment. And that's another thing with the normal as well, I think. It's almost like when everything's pre-verbal, there's a, people have the sense that, you know, it's not going to affect a child at that age. They won't remember yes. it. Or, and it's true in a way, they won't remember it in a... In a factual verbally. way. Mm. Yeah. 
but the body will remember and they'll experience it. When when he talks about prenatal care and how babies in utero are already attuned to the mother's stress level, that was really yeah, yeah. sad. That was really sad for me because the way our prenatal care often is, they're probably required to offer you full disclosure and they always talk about the risks, even though the risks might be infinitesimal, that what will be brought to attention. Mm. And he talks, uh, following Michelle Oden, uh, he talks about creating this protective, you know, almost cushioning a pregnant woman from the stresses, which is also a very common sense cultural thing. Culturally, at least we used to. I know in Ukraine, there was always this belief, oh, don't talk about anything bad to a pregnant woman. Really? Especially the older generation remembered that. But I think we've lost that. You know, that reminds me of that. um, I'm not sure if I'm right, but because my wife's from Colombia, I have to check if you're pregnant, you're not allowed to go to funerals. Yes. They won't let you go to a funeral. Same in Ukraine. So people knew it for centuries intuitively through observation, but we are losing this wisdom to more structured healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a very sad bit for me to read. However, you know, when I read about how this is wrong and this is wrong, the healthcare, the education, the the politics, part of me did rebel against it because I do believe this is still a very hard time to be a woman, for example, but this is a much better time to be a woman than it used to be. This is a very hard time to be a person of color, but it's much better than yeah. it used to be. Same for gay people. Um, <coughs> Feels like so, it's the same for children as well. Mm, yes. You know, the best time to be a child, in a sense. I feel like we but are... But maybe that's not what yeah. they're... Exp- I don't know. I feel like we are the generation of parents that are really asking questions and rethinking the authoritarian parenting and trying to do it differently. We're getting stuck in our own corners and bumping our heads against our own walls. Mm. But we are trying so much. Mind you, I'm sure our parents in a way thought the same. I know my parents, because I'm uh, from a post-Soviet country, their big mission was to not raise us in this Soviet propaganda. was, oh, finally, there's fresh air and we're not going to do the Soviet scene. And we were the first, what my grandma called, unspanked generation. So we were the first ones to have not been physically punished. And we're trying to build on that and go further with our children. And I'm sure we're going to screw up in our own unique ways. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's a dance. We're like, we're adding bits that we know intuitively we think are good as well. And and the danger that comes, we're losing bits as well. Like the saying, throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think it is. So we'll... We're, we're getting rid of some things, but we're also losing connection to some things as well. So that's a good way to put it. We're kind of how to dance our way along that journey. Well, taking the bits the that we want. Old wisdom. Okay, thank you for joining us for Gabor Mate and Gordon Newford special, focusing on the myth of normal. We'll continue that dive next week, talking a little bit more about compassionate inquiry. Tune in then and give us a follow. No, not a follow. Yes, like, definitely follow. A like, and a oh, like. follow us and like us. 
If you've got both for us, a follow and a like, we'd really appreciate that. (laughs) See ya. Yes, we're preparing nice things for the new year. So please follow our Facebook and Instagram to stay updated. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.